fascism is not just about electoral politics. It's a broad, many-sided movement. I don't think Trump has done. He had an ability to galvanize a fascist movement. He was able to bring all these disparate groups of fascists together in order to seize power and get the White House. Trump as a candidate, he has a kind of a demented, semi-charismatic, malignant, narcissist grip on the mind of millions and millions and millions of people. Whether it is Trump, the Trumpism is not going away. The movement's aims that it's going for have not changed. They have not altered. It is merely a question of who might be most effective in reaching those aims. In Refuse Fascism, we have the slogan, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. This is something that needs to actually spread as a commitment very quickly among millions of people. Welcome to episode 135 of the Refuse Fascism podcast, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of the show. Refuse Fascism exposes, analyzes, and stands against the very real danger and threat of fascism coming to power in the United States. And it's another weekend in the fall, and so I apologize that I have a cold again, and my voice sounds like this. In today's episode, we're sharing a conversation I had with frequent guest of the show, historian Paul Street, whose latest book is This Happened Here, Americaners, Neoliberals, and the Trumping of America. And writer, frequent guest, and guest host of this show, Coco Das. Both of these good folks are members of the Refuse Fascism editorial board. But first, thanks to everyone who goes the extra step and rates and reviews on Apple Podcasts, shares and comments on social media or YouTube. It helps us reach more listeners. And of course, we read everyone. Here are just a few messages from the last week. CGL, CGL, CGL reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts. They wrote, love this podcast. The Refuse Fascism podcast is a must listen every week. It is dedicated to understanding hard truths about the origins and direction of the Christian fascist movement, the ground that is breeding it and its continuing momentum. A word for its host, Sam Goldman, where a lot of commentators hurl invective or downplay the danger, Sam is a surgeon cutting deeply into the problem, her humor, and a great appreciation of her audience and her guests are infectious. Wow, CGL, CGL, CGL. Thank you. It is what we strive for. I'll be honest and say I had to check with my mom to make sure she didn't write it. She didn't. Over at the YouTube, Bill Wolf wrote regarding the interview last week with Bradley Onishi. This guy's been in the belly of the beast. That's why he gets it so well. Very good interview, important info. And Bill Fisk, 3225, wrote, Between Bradley Onishi and Andrew Seidel, if you aren't angry and scared, you are brain dead. 
I agree with the bills. So after you listen to today's interview, go and check out last week's episode and the Andrew Seidel interview if you haven't. And then go help us find more people who want to refuse fascism by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts and encouraging your friends and family to listen to do the same. Subscribe, follow so you never miss an episode, and of course, continue all that sharing and commenting on social media, on YouTube. It matters. Before we get to today's interview, I want to take a moment to send love to the families of the victims of the Colorado Springs Massacre and to the LGBTQ community in Colorado Springs and nationwide being terrorized by fascist mobs and fascist violence. Today is the Trans Day of Remembrance. Yesterday was the eve of the Trans Day of Remembrance, and at least five people were killed and 18 injured in a shooting at Q Club, a Colorado Springs LGBTQ club, during their Drag Divas Night. The news from Colorado Springs is heartbreaking, infuriating, horrifying, and a painfully predictable outcome of the Republic fascist war on LGBTQ plus folks' very existence. It is past time for uncompromising resistance to actively and visibly refuse fascism and fight for a world where people of all sexual orientations and genders thrive fully as their authentic selves. Also, I feel the need to mention that after nearly two years of no indictments, of letting Trump roam free after his fatal yet failed coup attempt, free to hold rallies repeating the lies of a stolen election, to announce he's running for president again, Merrick Garland has now passed the probe onto former Justice Department official Jack Smith to serve as special counsel to oversee the probes investigating Trump's actions following the 2020 presidential election leading up to the January 6th insurrection, as well as his handling of classified materials that were seized by federal agents at Mar-a-Lago. That there is even still a question of whether he broke the law in an effort to overturn Biden's election win is positively bonkers. Prospects of any accountability look dim, even as once again, many prematurely proclaim that Trump is toast, that the Hague is being brought to him. No matter what the DOJ does, to defend the norms or to make this investigation non-political. The fascists in power and the fascist base will not accept any questioning, any indictment, any investigation as legitimate. With that, here's my conversation with Coco Das and Paul Street. All right. I am so glad to bring back onto the show my friends and fellow members of the Refuse Fascism editorial board, both of whom I get a lot of inspiration and deepen my understanding of both the fascist threat we face and what to do about it. I am talking about Paul Street and Coco Das, both of whom are members of the Refuse Fascism editorial board. And we have a lot to get into since we last talked, and I am glad to be with them. So welcome back, Coco and Paul. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Sam. So let's start with what a lot of people are still trying to make sense of, the midterms. The midterms are over with the Republic fascists taking the House and the Democrats by a thread keeping the Senate. Fascist rising stars like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Boebert are still in power. 
people came out in force to vote for abortion rights. And in five states, they were able to explicitly expand protections for abortion. We should note that now the fascists are finding new ways to undo these victories. So many people were told and preparing themselves for a red wave that now they are celebrating the fact that the GOP takeover wasn't worse and comforting themselves with the idea that the GOP is split and fighting amongst each other. What do people concerned with stopping American fascism need to understand in relation to the midterms? I was thinking maybe, Coco, you'd want to go first for this one? I think it's mixed. On the one hand, I was really concerned about the way commentators were talking about the midterms and the Democrats not pushing the bread and butter issues. And they kept doing interviews with voters and the Republican voters kept running down the three fascist talking points, which was inflation, the border and parents' rights, things like that. But, you know, voter after voter would be talking about this. And, you know, there were all these like fraught conversations on CNN and MSNBC about how the Democrats weren't using the right strategy that they were talking too much about abortion. And abortion was not going to be an issue that people cared enough about to vote for. And I think that was proven wrong. I think actually people did go out and vote to try to keep the fundamental rights of women on the table, at least, you know, as much as I think, you know, depending on the Democrats, we can talk about later is a losing strategy for this. But the people did actually come out and it was sort of, I guess you can call it the way that Biden and leadership of the Democratic Party was talking about a referendum on democracy, that people are recognizing a certain threat to the democratic norms. They're not calling it fascism aside from the semi-fascism that Biden once uttered. But I think that it does say something that the Republicans, the Republic fascists underperformed in what would be expected in a midterm after a new president is elected. Normally, the opposing party retakes the legislature. On the other hand, I don't think that there's really that much to celebrate. I mean, they have the House and they're already talking about what are they going to spend their time on, more abortion bans and investigating Hunter Biden. And this is all fueled by revenge and a fascist program of misogyny and tearing up what are supposed to be democratic rights and the unbridled dominance of white Christian men. I guess that's my hot take right now. Thanks, Coco. Paul? There are some things to, uh, I don't know if the word to celebrate, but to have some relief about in connection with this purple haze election, neither a red wave nor a blue tsunami. Yes, there was no huge red wave, as was widely predicted. Yes, a number of Trump MAGA candidates, Trump back candidates, went down in defeat, which is a color cause of great celebration on MSNBC and other liberal outlets. Yes, it does seem that Trump is now in some trouble with the GOP and with big, rich, revanchist, billionaire GOP donors, <laughs> Rupert Murdoch, the New York Post and Fox News. And this is significant. A number of the people who are up for key election supervision positions in presidentially contested states, like that open fascist oath-keeper Mark Fincham, who was running for secretary of state in Arizona, lost, and his parallels in other states lost as well. And yes, the Democrats clearly kept the Senate. And yes, it appears that a lot of the Republicans actually conceded, though I guess we're going to see about that. There will be a lot of election challenges now. But on the other hand, all the cartwheels that liberals seem to be doing and the smugness that I'm hearing from them 
is really, really misplaced and indicative of a drastic lowering of sights of what's possible for popular struggle in this country. There wasn't a blue tsunami either. 210 election deniers won uh, elections, fascist freaks, and even QAnoners like Marjorie Taylor Greene and the AR-15 lunatic Boebert and uh, the pedophile Matt Gates and the anti-vaxxing freak Ron Johnson, not to mention the woman-hating Republic fascist governors Greg Abbott in Texas and Ron DeSantis in Florida, both of whom are willing to pack people into planes and buses and dump them like human garbage in northern liberal enclaves. They both came back with resounding victories. DeSantis's star is now rising. He's being hailed for having picked up Latino votes and Miami Dade. And we can talk a little bit more about him and what DeSantis is about, because some of us think that he's a more dangerous Republic fascist than Trump. Yeah, Trump's in some trouble with the GOP and with billionaires, but why? Because he's now perceived as a barrier, as an obstacle to authoritarian white nationalist, Christo fascist, authorian consolidation, the fucking, excuse me, can I say that on your podcast? The, the fascist. They, they still have a ridiculous, uh, out of wax, uh, five to four, six, three supermajority on the Supreme Court. And that court right now is hearing, or what, about to hear, I don't know if they already heard it, Morvey Harper. And Morvey Harper is a decision that they're likely to sign off on, and it advances the insane independent state legislature theory, which is not about secretaries of state or governors or attorney generals nullifying popular presidential votes in states. It's about state legislatures. And a lot of these contested states still have state legislatures. They won the goddamn House. They won the House of Representatives. And you can't just attribute it to gerrymandering, though gerrymandering was a factor. They won. The Republic fascists won the power popular vote in the national U.S. House elections by three to four percent. That's just damning with regard to the Democratic Party. But, you know, the fascists, they, insofar as they, they did lose or didn't what they get, they like that. They love that. It enhances their sense of victimization. It enhances their sense of martyrdom. And remember, fascism is not just about electoral politics. It's a broad, many-sided movement. And sometimes its most violent outbursts take place precisely when Democrats sit in Congress and in governor's offices and in the White House. The Oklahoma City bombing, the assaults on the abortion clinic during the 1990s, none of that is going away. And the Republic fascists, I noticed from watching the media coverage, got to be just constantly renormalized by media talking heads who habitually referred to their movement and their party during this election as what? Populists mm -hmm. and the working class, the working class, populist Republicans. So goodbye to that little moment when Joe Biden was willing to call the GOP enthralled to semi-fascism, which, of course, we knew was full on fascism. And, you know, we should probably say a thing or two about uh, Biden. Speaking of Biden, who now, since the GOP has the House, he'll have another excuse for the, the Dems not being able to do anything. Well, we don't have the votes, you know, which they'll like. Biden will like that. He'll like being blocked in the House of Representatives. And he'll like having an excuse to pursue his little hobby of reaching across the aisle and making complicit deals with Republican fascists because we have no choice. You know, we have no choice at all to do that. But we should, at some point in our conversation, say a thing or two about Biden saying, we just don't have the votes to pass the national bill codifying Roe v. Wade. Remember, he promised before the election, consistent with what Coco was saying about exploiting the abortion. He promised the first thing he was going to do, just a ridiculous promise and a disingenuous promise and a cynical promise. The first thing I'm going to do after the midterms is sign a bill codifying Roe v. Wade as a national law. He said that like two days after the election. Give me a break, sleepy Joe. <laughs>
<laughs> I want to bring Coco back in because she's been nodding her head and looks like she has something on the tip of her tongue. Well, just one thing I forgot to mention. I think one big lesson that I think has been borne out since the 2020 elections and since 2016 is how polarized and how divided this country is. And there was, I can't remember who wrote it, but someone immediately after the evening or the next day in the New York Times said, it's almost like the polarization of the country has come its own check and balance. You don't actually have these other checks and balances anymore. She didn't say all this. I'm expanding. The Supreme Court is gone, but there are these very sharply divided polls. And where that goes is likely to be actually a very dangerous place. And also, is the polarization actually in the interests of the people of the country and the world? In Refuse Fascism, we have the slogan, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. This is something that needs to actually spread as a commitment very quickly among millions of people. The other thing I want to say is the Democrats, if they really cared about the right to legal abortion nationwide. There were so many things they could have done before the fall of Roe. We had a fucking leak that told us what the Supreme Court was going to do. And did the Democrats say all hands on deck, people get in the streets, use your right to nonviolent protest and join Rise Up for Abortion Rights and stop this from happening, compel the Supreme Court to not overturn Roe because it would threaten the stability of the country. No, they didn't do that. They said, oh, oh, there's nothing you can do. It's already done, this fatalism, and all you can do is vote for Democrats. Why? (laughs) You know, that's this like thing that they dangle over people's heads. I'm not, I voted. I'm not telling people to vote or not vote. But if you're relying on the Democrats to give back millions of women and girls the right to abortion, dream on, it's not gonna happen. And I want to definitely go back to that, Coco, later, but there's a few other things I want to get to that are part of the complete content, I think, that we're in right now. I do want to echo Coco's concern, rightly so, about what a spirit of vengeance and power, the danger that poses. And it doesn't just pose a danger to Hunter Biden. It poses a danger that's much deeper and much broader. If you look at what they've done in state houses across the country in terms of abortion already. (laughs) And you don't think there's going to be more vengeance out for women. If you look at what they've done with such viciousness around trans youth, if you don't think that that's going to be doubled down on, wake up. There's a lot of vengeance voting. (laughs) If you don't think that there were restrictions and, you know, that we're targeting, explicitly targeting black and brown people, you don't think that that's going to be gone after even harder? Like, wake up. You know, they are investigating with a vengeance anyone and anything and going after anyone that poses any obstacle to fascist domination. We now have Trump formally announcing his official candidacy for president for 2024. Not that he hasn't been campaigning for it since before the last election. Talking about breaking the rules and staying in power for three terms or for life. While it comes as no surprise, I think there is much to be said about his prospects, the threat it represents, the delusions people have expressed on our side about it. This relates to to Paul, your point about the smugness that Trumpism is done, that fascism is done. What do you think, if any, are the important takeaways of his announcement? Let me start off by saying that I really want to echo something you just said. All the cartwheels and smugness about this election feels to me like a bit of a raised middle finger. 
to the millions and millions of women and girls who are stuck in red states with governors like Abbott and DeSantis and Kim Reynolds here in Iowa. This vengeance, the last Refuse Fascism podcast you had, the, the author that you had on, was absolutely right. These Christian white fascists, they don't look at an electoral outcome like this and go, oh, gee, uh, maybe we're not as pervasively influential and dominant as we thought we are. We better moderate our sentiments a little bit. No, they take this to mean uh, evildoers are corrupting and destroying the white Christian purity of this nation. And we have to double down and be even worse and come with the vengeance. You're absolutely right. Losing the house is not just about oh, they'll be able to block all the supposedly progressive message bills that will be coming out of the House. It's also about cranking up investigations to go after anybody and everybody who dares to question the fascist agenda on anything. Trump declaring, my God, I mean, this guy is just the shit that never stops oozing out of the dominant mainstream U.S. media politics culture. And, you know, a lot of the MSNBC cartwheels over his alleged demise are problematic in two ways. The first way it's problematic is what will replace it. It could arguably even be more dangerous than I need DeSantis. Ruth Ben-Ghiad is very good about this on Substack. She's been tracking DeSantis, Florida, and it's absolutely horrific. We don't have time to go into all everything DeSantis has done, but it's really, really, really bad. And he might have more capacity to win in 2024 than Trump. Who knows? But the other thing about it is, I think they're jumping the gun a little bit in writing off Trump as a candidate. He has a kind of a demented, semi-charismatic, malignant, narcissist grip on the mind of millions and millions and millions of people. I don't know what, 30% of the country are about in his base, and it's not at all clear that that can be completely dislodged. And those folks are disproportionately empowered in the presidential primary system. They turn out. So it's not clear that he done. And I'm not sure the Democrats don't want to run against him again in 2024, too. That's more back to the cynicism of the, of the Democratic Party. Trump said something very chilling and interesting in his announcement. And I'll wrap up on this, which was he said repeatedly, it's not just about me, which is funny to hear from a level one malignant narcissist. But he said, it's also a movement well, you know, insofar as that's true, and there is some truth to that, the name of that movement is called fascism. I wrote a whole book about it. It's called This Happened Here. I don't think Trump is done. He had an ability to galvanize a fascist movement, straight up violent fascists, the white supremacists. He was able to bring all these disparate groups of fascists together in order to seize power and get the White House in 2016. And maybe that coalition has frayed and is falling apart. But what he has done to transform the Republican Party, what he's done to transform this country and millions of people, you know, fascism is transformative of society as well, because it gets normalized. Mm. And these things that were unthinkable, maybe five or six years ago are now part of the discourse, including women like being prevented from leaving the state they live in, or having to present negative pregnancy tests in order to travel. I mean, this is discussed as if it's a normal thing. There is that whole transformation, but even as a leader, I'm not sure that actually DeSantis has that kind of charisma to be able to pull together actually what Trump did. That said, in the last podcast, Sam, you quoted somebody who said, this Christian nationalism is not an electoral movement. It's a crusade. One that was thing, me quoting me. Oh, that was you. Very <laughs> wise, Sam. You are correct. that it is, it is a crusade. And I think one other thing, I'm not sure DeSantis has that Trump has, is an ability to unleash the violence of the space. Maybe I'm wrong on that. But I think Trump is uniquely willing to go to places that many other people are not quite willing to go that far. 
I think he's still probably the Republican front runner. We have to step up our resistance to this, whether he's as powerful as he was before, whether his coalition is fraying or whether people are going to throw him under the bus. The resistance to him, what he represents, and to the whole fascist movement, whether it's led by DeSantis or Abbott, we have to step up. We're coming in from behind. And part of that is because we're relying on Biden and the Democrats. I think that's really essential, Coco. The last parts of what you were saying about we have to be upping it because they're not hesitating at all. They're continuing to advance. In fact, as Paul was saying, sometimes they advance even more when they feel cornered or whatever. And I think that whether it is Trump, the Trumpism is not going away. The movement's aims that it's going for have not changed. They have not altered. It is merely a question of who might be most effective in reaching those aims, as Paul was getting at. And I think that for those concerned about humanity and what American fascism poses to humanity and the planet, I think that we have to stop, get off this constant writing of the political obituaries of Trump and Trumpism in the fascist movement. Mm. And remember what the last five years have been. People have consistently been like, he's done, it's over. Oh, and yeah. get stronger and stronger until like a hulking out of this horror. I don't know if I said it on the last episode, but Part of our power comes from confronting what is real and what is happening. Because if we don't, we are totally incapable of stopping it. And even if that means that it's scary, it's uncomfortable, it's painful to think about that you live in a country that's filled with fascists, that is step number one in terms of doing anything about it. I would argue that step number two is akin to what Coco was saying about realizing where power lies. And it is not in giving it over to the Democratic Party. That's my personal opinion. We brought this up earlier on. I think Paul brought it up. I think we have to touch on Biden saying at this press conference in Bali, saying that the Dems can't actually codify Roe. Wow, earth-shaking news. They haven't for the past 50 years. But seriously, what the fuck is the response yeah. from the you know focus on the elections crowd right now? Have you seen like calls for protests? No, no. they're shaking their heads. No. You know, it is sort of mind boggling that there was actually a movement. There were the beginnings of tens of thousands of people in the streets after the leak and then after Roe was overturned. That is what was needed, this green wave that swept through Latin America and won abortion rights there. Here, everything got channeled back into the midterms. And part of doing that, I think, was this attack on Rise Up for Abortion Rights and Sansara Taylor and Baba Vakian, uh, this very unprincipled attack that did a lot of damage. Even people who were in the streets then thinking all they can do is vote for Democrats. Yes, it's better to not have Christian fascists in power who are trying to enslave women. But I mean, we've said this a lot. Nothing in this country has ever been won by voting alone. Mm -hmm. And the Democrats use this as an issue. They use the fall of Roe to perform better than expected in the midterms. And that is highly cynical and highly, you know, like Paul said, it's like it's a big middle finger to all the women in these red states, including Texas and Florida, who now are being denied miscarriage care. They are all the abortion funds that people thought, maybe not all, but in Texas, everything in this area that people thought was going to be the answer. They are not funding abortion. Okay, so all this money that people poured into that and then being chained to these normal channels 
that are being eviscerated, it's making life hell for women and girls all over this country. You know, I have to say that I'm pretty pissed off at the Democrats and the women's movement aligned with the Democrats for taking that strategy. Also, not to mention that they've actually funded some of these fascist candidates, thinking it'll give their candidates a better chance to win. This is highly irresponsible and risky, you know, but I don't see any reaction. I don't actually know what the plan is. <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem like there is a plan. And once again, people are being led to make peace with the fascism that is driving these attacks mm-hmm. on abortion. You know, Sam and Coco, I'm not sure the single most disgusting thing that I heard somewhat after the election was Biden getting up and saying, oh, it turns out we don't have the votes in a house to pass the bill that we promised that would codify Roe v. Wade as national law. I mean, the Democrats had numerous opportunities to do that over the last half century and never did that. But furthermore, does Joe, who is a product for most of his career of the U.S. Senate, really think we don't know how the Senate works? What if the Democrats had kept the House? There's a 60-vote rule in the Senate. They didn't have the votes in the Senate to codify Roe v. Wade unless they were going to get rid of the filibuster, which they've showed entirely no willingness to do because they're scared to do that. So really, what's he talking about? That they would have codified Roe v. Wade if they had had the House and made right to an abortion national? I don't think they would have. They wouldn't have done that. And this is just part of the cynical game that the Democratic Party has been playing. Does he think we don't know how the Senate works? I guess many of us in the country don't. Does he think we don't know that the Supreme Court is 6354 right wing and so that a national abortion rights law wouldn't be potentially challenged and overthrown in the Supreme Court? And of course, he also thinks we don't know, and I suppose most Americans don't know, that Biden has full executive branch power to declare the war on abortion a national public health emergency and to order three safe and legal abortions on federal lands and military bases across the whole goddamn country. And Sam, you and I were in Washington, D.C. on the day the decision came down, June 24, 2022, and heard Sarah Taylor say exactly that immediately after the decision, right? While other people were crying in the corner and the Christian fascists were jumping and celebrating, rise up and Sansara was saying legal abortion across the land right now. Joe Biden has the power to do that. It isn't just fatalism on the part of the Democrats. Coco's absolutely right. It's cynicism. And I had discussions with Iowa Democrats well before the decision came down in which they said flat out to me, we're looking forward to the decision. Why? Because it's going to be our ace in the hole to avoid the usual fate of the party and presidential power in the midterm elections. We're going to have a Rovember. We will ride this female enslavement decision to power in November. Actually, to some extent, I do think they did contain their damage in the polls with the Roe decision, which just makes it even seem sicker. I'll say it again, a raised middle finger to millions and millions and millions of women and girls and transgendered people dealing with this horrific assault on reproductive freedom. Thank you both. I really appreciate both of your takes on it. And I think that there's a tremendous amount to learn in terms of what it means to fight for legal abortion nationwide now. And I think that there's a need for people to confront reality about the full scope of this situation and including what this post-Roe hellscape really looks like. Now that we know that tens of thousands forced to bear children against their will, which we know drives people further in poverty, we know risks their lives, in particular Black women and Native American women, We know that it traps women in domestic violence. And we know that this whole culture of declaring by the state 
that women are nothing more than incubators, debases women here and all across the world. And people need to look at what that means without any rose-colored glasses on, which isn't to say that there's nothing that we can do, but it is to look at the world as it is. There's now a group of anti-abortion activists suing the FDA over mipridazone, which is the drug that's used as the two-part medication protocol for abortion, um, medical abortion, at least accounts for over half, I don't have the full statistic right now, of abortions in this country. It's safer than penicillin, it's safer than aspirin, and this is horrifying. And it feels like each day we have like a story of another woman who almost died from anti-abortion laws. There was this past week, the story that I read about Amanda who had a much wanted pregnancy. She went through fertility treatments. Her water broke at 18 weeks too early for a baby to survive, but the fetus had a heartbeat and the doctors could not terminate the pregnancy unless Amanda's life was at direct and immediate risk. She waited. She went septic. She nearly died. She had to be put in the ICU and the trauma she endured left her with a scarred uterus. It is very likely that she will be unable to have children Mm -hmm. in the future. None of that was necessary unless the goal, unless the aim was to punish her, was to punish women. Jill Filopovich has a whole piece on it on her Substack. In a similar story in Ohio, a woman traveled to Ohio to celebrate her brother's wedding. She had a miscarriage. And in Ohio, they refused her treatment. They discharged her from the hospital. She went into her bathtub. It filled with blood. She passed clots the size of golf balls. Miscarriages can be incredibly painful for those who have not experienced them. And it's not an easy experience. She lost so much blood that she passed out. And it was only then when she was passed out in the bathroom that she was able to get the medical care that she needed from doctors. I'm saying all this because December 1st will mark the one-year anniversary since the Dobbs case was heard, a case that should have never been heard Mm -hmm. by the Supreme Court, a case that ended up in the fascist act Supreme Court, in which they took that as an opportunity to overturn Roe v. Wade legal protection for abortion in this country. Rise Up for Abortion Rights has called for December 1st to be a day of manifesting green protests nationwide at courthouses across the country on Thursday, December 1st, again, the one-year anniversary of when the Supreme Court heard our oral arguments in the case that overturned abortion rights. They're calling for people to take action at courthouses near Mm -hmm. them, bloody die-ins, speeches, protests, all making clear that we cannot rely on the courts and have to rely on ourselves to rise up to win legal abortion on demand and without apology everywhere. I'm sure that both of you, if there's actions happening near you, you'll be joining. I know I'm going to be a little late to mine because I have the opportunity to interview Philip Orsi the same day. So, but I will be there. I will be at the courthouse. If you could share why you think it's important that we're raising this demand right now in the streets. Here in Austin, where actually the courthouse is covered, there's all this construction near there. We're going to the UT drag area and going to go make some good trouble there. Nonviolent protests. You know, one thing is people have already forgotten things that were argued, being argued in court about the interests of the fetus versus the interests of women. How can you weigh those two things equally? Fetuses are not people, so they don't have interests. You know, they're a part of the woman's body. Amy Coney Barrett saying, oh, what's the big deal? You can just drop your baby off at a firehouse. And 
one, I think people didn't take seriously that the threat. And I think, I know you were there uh, in front of the Supreme Court, but not the tens of thousands that should have been there. And we have to wake people up. People are slumbering through this. They've let their sights be lowered. They've let the enslavement of women and girls, plus the whole fascist movement that is going after trans rights and LGBTQ rights and voting rights and all this, they've let all of this be normalized and strengthened and advanced. And December 1st, we can't let it go unmarked. And we have to actually remind people of how you, one, this is not something you can make peace with. Just because of those stories that you just told, and so many more, thousands of more stories, and including all of the people who are forced into motherhood now or forced into into childbirth now this is a nightmare and we have to wake people up to the nightmare and we have to make a stand in the streets and actually make that become a public question that no one can ignore in society is this something you're really willing to make peace with what is it doing now and where does it lead when you have an absurdly right-wing christian fascist 6354 supreme court which is itself the product of a profoundly authoritarian setup that includes the Electoral College and an absurd Senate apportionment regime, which uh, drastically overrepresents the most reactionary, revanchist parts of the country. But in any event, when you have that kind of court, the date that they decide to hear horrible revanchist cases is really critical because it's the fact that they even decided to hear oral arguments on it is an indication of what's happening. And that was certainly true with Dobbs v. Jackson, that they even decided to hear more v. Harper. You said December 7th is the oral argument, Sam? Yeah, that they even decided to hear that is critical. It's an insane case. Like, what the fuck are you even hearing it for? The independent state legislature theory? Really? So the state legislatures can nullify popular votes in state elections? Jesus Christ, excuse me. So, you know, so the date of oral arguments is a really, really big deal. Yes, Chicago Rise Up will be meeting, I wish I had the exact time, Federal Plaza, right in the middle. That's our main protest site, right in downtown Chicago. It's the whole federal complex. And by the way, the federal court system down there is where Amy Coney Barrett was located prior to her handmade elevation to the Christian fascist dream court. Now, in Chicago, unlike in Texas, we're sort of right in the middle of a blue bubble. And we're up against the whole kind of smug, lakefront, liberal, democratic sense that, oh, we're okay because we're a blue state and our governor is Pritzker and the Dems have the legislature and we have this heroic mythology about ourselves in Illinois and Chicago. We're a great sanctuary state and we somehow are going to heroically take care of all the women and girls and transgender people seeking abortions coming in from Iowa, from Wisconsin, from Kentucky, from Indiana, from Tennessee, from Missouri, even though we don't have the capacity to do that. And even though Poor women, and particularly women of color, don't have the resources to just magically travel all the way to blue states. There's this kind of liberal playing along with and into the divide and conquer game of states' rights. We're okay, and we're going to heroically take care of the rest of the country. No, we're not. We're not okay. And in fact, we're getting backed up in our own abortion clinics in Chicago. So we're up against that, and we have to challenge people in the blue bubbles to think nationally. And to not play along with the whole states' rights divide and conquer game the Republic fascists are so good at playing. So yes, please, Federal Plaza, Chicago chapter of abortion rights on December 1st, take it to the streets. I just want to underscore something that you both talked about is a old refuse fascism slogan that was right after the election. We were first starting and we were actually trying to stop the inauguration. And the slogan was, don't accommodate, don't collaborate, don't conciliate. And I think that it relates 100% to 
what we see happening in regards to the overturning of abortion rights. This need to not accept a new normal, to not accept a situation where it's over 22 million women don't have access to abortion in the state that they live, to not accommodate to something that cannot be accommodated to, to normalize something that cannot be normalized. But, you know, if you want to put the moral bankruptcy aside of saying, you know, well, we're okay here in this blue bubble, to put that moral bankruptcy aside, to think that you will be safe, that somehow your skin will be saved is just ahistorical, like is just wrong. It does not comport to the reality of a nationwide abortion ban being something the Republic fascists are going for with birth control directly in their sights, with overturning the right to gay marriage and, and intimacy. It's just wrong. And so I appreciate what both of you are saying, and I encourage everyone listening to join actions organized by Rise Up for Abortion Rights on Thursday, December 1st. I should note that Rise Up for Abortion Rights is also calling on people to take up the International Day Against Violence Against Women, which is November 25th. Here in the U- U.S., November 25th is also Black Friday. Rise Up is calling on organizers to take creative action together to turn it into Green Friday by taking out the green bandana of abortion rights in crowded shopping hubs and staging disruptive nonviolent actions. Find more on all of it. Find actions near you at riseupfortheNumberAbortionRights.org. I want to thank you both for coming on and sharing your insight, your perspective, your expertise, and of course, your time with us. I wanted to give you an opportunity to say anything that we didn't cover. If there's anything in addition to being in the streets December 1st for legal abortion on demand and without apology nationwide, there's anything else that you encourage people to do. This might include things that you've read recently that you want people to check out, things that you've listened or watched that you recommend people check out. I want to give you an opportunity to do so. Let's start with Coco. I would highly recommend that people check out the three-part interview with Bob Bacon on the Revolution Nothing Less show. He touches on all of these existential questions that humanity faces. And it's, you know, especially in the wake of the attack on him and Sansara and Rise Up for Abortion Rights, it's really important to find out for yourself, who is this leader? Why did he come under such attack? What is he about? And also to really engage with these existential questions. I mean, one thing I was thinking about, Sam, while you were talking is, I keep hearing these people saying, oh, well, it took them 50 years to overturn Roe. This is going to be a long fight. If you think we've got 50 years, first of all, to win any of these fights, you're really delusional. But how can you even say like, okay, it's okay for millions of people to be dealing with this, to lose their fundamental right to their own reproductive system for 50 years. So I really think that it's important for people to just think about these questions, think about what is it that not only this society, which is highly divided and polarized is facing, but the future of humanity, what is at stake and what are in this time of just supremely lowered sights that this system actually thrives on you lowering your sights? What would it mean to to lift your sights? And and why is the world like this? And what would it take to get out of it? So that's all the interviews have aired, but you can go back and watch them all and invite your friends, discuss them with you and get it out there. It lifts the level of debate and discussion um, among many other things. Some other problems with the midterms real briefly. World War III seemed to be almost completely not an issue as we stand on the edge of a 
the precipice of that regarding Ukraine, insofar as anyone seemed to bring it up, sickeningly enough, it seemed to be the right wing, the neo-fascist, not out of good reasons, but out of their kind of sick attachment to uh, the fascist regime in Russia. Climate seemed to be almost completely missing. We continue to discuss the immigration issue without ever saying anything about the role of the American empire in making life miserable in Central and Latin America and creating uh, the desire to get out of there and come up north. And in the first place, there's this routine description of our system as a democracy in the election coverage when it is no such thing at all. As Bob Avakian would point out, it is in reality bourgeois democracy providing a cloak for an underlying capitalist class dictatorship. I did watch the Avakian interviews. They're really, really first rate. And among many things people can extract from them are the historical context for the rise of Christo-white nationalist fascism in the country. I don't know anybody that's spoken and written more persuasively and brilliantly about how and why we have a fascist movement in this country, the historical context for that as the response to the victories of the social movements of the 1960s and the 1970s, as a response to the advances of secularism, the advances of feminism, the advances of Black civil rights and Black power and all of that. November 25th, people, I hope they come out for that, for the Rise Up events in part to promote December 1st. I think that's one of the key functions of November 25th. That's how it's understood in Chicago, to raise consciousness about December 1st and the need for a green wave beneath and beyond these quadrennial and biennial candidate-centered, major party, big money, corporate-managed, narrow-spectrum electoral extravaganzas that are sold to us as that's politics, the only politics to that. We say, fuck that. Refuse Fascism unites with people from diverse perspectives to sound the alarm and prevent the consolidation of this American fascism. The opinions shared by Coco and Paul, like my own, are our own thoughts and are not official endorsements or statements of RefuseFascism.org. The impending loss of Twitter as a functioning platform for sharing information and even organizing resistance is so sad. It's clearly not the end of the world, but it's going to make it harder for people to communicate. And it's worth considering the impact it will have on the larger political soup that we're all being cooked in. We hope to be covering this story and its relation to the fascist danger in future episodes. So if you have suggestions for guests, please send it our way. After running a Twitter poll for something like 24 hours, Elon Musk, the now sole owner of Twitter, decided to reinstate fascist Donald Trump's account late Saturday night, claiming the people have spoken. As many have pointed out, Twitter played a key role in fomenting and organizing the whole Trump coup attempt down to on January 6th when he directed mobs to go after his own VP, Mike Pence. The obvious sham of using a Twitter poll to override the judgment of the now-fired staff of the company who decided to disallow the platform from being used for a violent fascist takeover does not bode well for either the platform or, of course, the future of humanity, given the importance of this digital public square in communications for people all over the world. Apparently, Trump is, for the moment, refusing to post on Twitter, as it would conflict with his business interest in promoting his own social platform, Truth Social. But all his old content is back up, and of course, his fascist followers couldn't be happier, relishing and everyone else's anger and grief. For now, we're not deleting our account or anything like that. But with the expectation that this site may completely crash soon, since no one is left to work at the company and maintain the infrastructure, we've created a Fediverse account. And you can find us there 
at mastodon.world forward slash at refuse fascism. A link's in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Refuse Fascism. We want to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, ideas for topics or guests, or lend a skill. Really need graphic designers. Tweet me at Sam B. Goldman for as long as Twitter's still a thing. Or you can drop me a line at Samantha Goldman at refusefascism.org or leave a voicemail by visiting anchor.fm forward slash refuse fascism and hitting the message button. Want to support the show? It's simple. Show us some love by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And of course, follow, subscribe, so you never miss an episode. You can also literally put it on your forehead with our Refuse Fascism beanie, available at refusefascism.org, and start the conversation. Chip in to support our pod and content creation to help people understand and act to stop the fascist threat. We don't have sponsors. We count on you. Whether you can give $5 or 50 it all makes a difference in producing and promoting this independent weekly podcast. Give today by visiting refusefascism.org and hitting the donate button. Thanks to Richie Marini, Lena Thorne, and Mark Tinkleman for helping produce this episode. Thanks to incredible volunteers, we have transcripts available for each week. So be sure to visit refusefascism.org and sign up to get them in your inbox each week. We'll be off next Sunday, but we'll be back December 3rd. Until then, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. <laughs>